You are listening to the Enormo Cast. One would think that a dirtbag like Alex Honnold would sit back and let that sweet, sweet free solo money wash over him, like the sweat washed over your armpits watching him paddle up the free blast sans rope. Didn't look exactly solid, did it? But he ain't partying with DiCaprio quite yet. Instead, he's doubling, tripling, quadrupling down on the Honnold Foundation, his nonprofit dedicated to creating equity through solar projects around the globe. And now Black Diamond is giving you a swank opportunity to get on board with the Honnold Signature Chalk Bag and Solution Harness. What's the chalk bag like? Well, you know, I've got one. It holds chalk. Sits there for when you're sweaty. No dumb pockets or zippers or anything. And the Solution Harness, well, Alex Honnold doesn't always climb in a harness, but when he does, it's a solution. But most importantly, the Honnold Foundation gets a kickback from BD every time you buy a Honnold Signature product. So check them out at blackdiamondequipment.com or your favorite local shop. And if you don't want commerce getting in the way of your giving, donate directly at honoldfoundation.com and keep that ratty old harness that scares your partners. Hey climbers, that rock that you lovingly caress every weekend is just never going to love you back. Of course, it's never going to suddenly ask you what you're thinking right now either. But devoting even a tenth of that energy into an actual human relationship might be a better bet in terms of love and companionship, no matter what your alpinist friends say. Peter W. Gilroy is here to help. Climber and jewelry maker, Peter can hook you up with just the right gift for that human in your life who just smiles when you get home late from the crag, or who is still belaying you even though you're falling lower and lower on your proj. So go to peterwgilroy.com and enter Enormo at checkout for a discount on art you can wear and to help the Enormacast. We gotta get Listen, uh, uh, where are you playing in town? You, are you playing here? We're doing the uh, Enormo Dome, whatever it is. It's terrific. Oh, it's yeah, big place that side of town. That's a big place. You sold it out. I'll see. We really should. Look, you better get up there before you panic. Those pens are loose. You're very good. I have really enjoyed having them with you. We'll make it. I don't think so. But we shall continue with style. Good weather, bad weather. Now or later, anytime. Today's show is brought to you by Black Diamond Equipment. With support from Maxim Ropes. And the fine folks at La Sportiva. And don't forget our charter sponsor, Bonfire Coffee. Go to bonfirecoffee.com and enter Enorma at checkout for a discount on great coffee and to support the Enorma cast. And now back to the show. Hello and welcome to the Enorma cast. This is your host, Chris Kloos. It is February 24th. About 11.30 here in Mexico, Baja, Mexico, coming to you remotely from old Mexico on a family vacation, a beach vacation. Can you hear the ocean in the background? Yeah, probably not. It's a little ways away. I was going to walk down there, record next to the ocean so you could hear the waves, but I figured you'd be like, fuck that guy and his stupid, awesome beach vacation while I'm sitting here in a cubicle. But anyway, where were we? This is episode 170 of the Enormacast, a conversation with British, English, however that works, climber, Tim Emmett. And 
The Twitter machine just informed me, as all of you already know by the time you're listening to this, that Free Solo won the Oscar for Best Full-Length Documentary. So congratulations to Jimmy Chin, Chai Vassarelli, and, and of course, a Norma cast favorite, our friend Alex Honnold. Alex, please remember us, the lowly climbers, the, the dirtbags, the weekend warriors, all of us. You stood on our shoulders, my friend. Please remember us on your meteoric rise to superstardom. So does this mean that climbing has jumped the shark or is about to explode? Or maybe none of the above? I don't know. It doesn't really matter because I'm just going to keep doing the enormous cast. Most of you guys hopefully will keep listening. I'll keep getting one-star reviews because my intros are too long and I talk too much. The only thing that's going to change actually is that now your grandma is going to want to know if you freehand. Just tell your grandma you don't freehand. Okay? Even if you do. Grandma doesn't need to worry about you, all right? Since I'm getting closer and closer to that one-star review, let's get this thing going. Tim Emmett. Talked to Tim at the Michigan Ice Fest. I practically pulled him off the stage. I caught him right as he came off the stage. Reminded him that we'd met before at the Seco Block, where he was the in-house MC, and myself and my friend Lisa Hathaway were the on-air personalities. Wasn't that weird? Does anybody remember that? That was fucking weird. Fun, but weird. Anyhow, we tried to figure out a time later in the weekend that we could do the interview, and then suddenly Tim just said, let's do it right now. Let's just go to my hotel room, and we'll get it done. So we retired to the hotel room immediately and sat down for a solid hour. But I wish we'd had more time because we barely touched a bunch of things that Tim is really, really accomplished at, including ice climbing. We kind of just barely talk about ice climbing. He recently put up one of the hardest, if not the hardest, pure ice routes in the world in Helmkin falls up in Canada. He's also a really accomplished alpine climber, which we kind of just touch on. He's a decent surfer. He snowboards. He free dives. The guy's all over the place. Incredible athlete, a family man now, a dad, which is all put into the mix. And we talk about all that stuff on this episode of the Cast. So let's get to it. And buenas noches, amigos, from here in Baja. La Sportiva presents Storytime. There once was a little boy named Tommy Caldwell. One day, little Tommy decided he wanted to climb a really big wall, but he couldn't find any shoes to climb the big wall in. So he decided to build his own out of scotch tape, fluffernutter, and a used pair of hand jammies left behind by a couple of euros in Camp 4. When those didn't work, Tommy called the adults at Sportiva and asked them for help. Sportiva came up with the TC Pro, named after little Tommy himself. A shoe so good at big wall climbing that little TC grew up to climb the hardest, biggest big walls in the world in his TC Pros. Then he talked his best friend, teeny tiny Alex H, into trying them, and Alex, well, he became a pretty good climber too. So if you want to be like TC or Tiny A, go to Sportiva.com or your favorite mountain shop and check out a pair of TC Pros, and maybe someday you'll grow up too. The end. But yeah, we were just talking before I pressed record about families and kids and yeah. being involved and like yeah. being there for for family time. And you know, it seems to me like looking at and I don't know when, you know, just your your life in general is such this life of an adventurer that is all over the place. Because I, you know, it's like I've been kind of watching or know about some of your history, your climbing, and it's so 
broad what you do. You're rock climbing, you're mountaineering, you're alpine climbing. You were into base jumping for a long time. And yeah, so I mean, tell me a little bit about like where you find the balance with the with the life with with your son, five years yeah. old, your wife. Well, Chris, you're a dad too. You've got a three-year-old son. Um, I think for me, um, it is a balance, you know, and it's tough. Um, finding a, I find it tough um, having enough time to do all the things I want to do. And I guess that's normal life, isn't it? Because you want to do so much and you've only got, you know, X amount of time. So what I found with being a parent is that I'm much more strategic with my time than I used to be, you know, like... If I've got a two-hour training session, I'm, like, on it, and I'm not chatting to people. And sometimes I feel a bit rude, actually, especially down the local climbing wall, and you might not have seen someone for a while, but, you know, I'm on a mission, and I need to get this, like... <laughs> do you know what I mean? I've got yeah. an agenda, and, and, um, and especially in a local town where it's not very big, there's a lot of people you know, in Squamish. I mean, but anyway, like, yeah, it's, it's a tricky one from that perspective. Yeah, I mean, it's funny how much time actually in the gym you're climbing versus, like, well, John. Yeah, but this yeah. is the thing. This is the thing, Chris. Like, right now, I'm about to go to Spain. I've been training for three months to go to Spain. And it's really... I kind of feel like the pressure's on, actually. I've been to Spain twice to try and do this climb called Aravea. And I've never climbed anything as hard as that before. And I've now spent seven weeks trying to do this route that Chris Yama put up, which is like the most popular 9A in the world. Um, but I'm going back again for the third time. And I really feel like I need to do it. You know, I need to do it this time. And that's only pressure that I'm putting on myself. But the backlash of that is that there's a couple of things. First of all, in order to be, in order to give myself a good chance of success, I need to be there for a while. And the more time I spend away from my family, the less they like that, you know. And um, so it's this fine balance between I really want to be successful, so you know, spending a lot of time in Spain is going to give me a good chance to do that. Yet I don't want to be there for a long time because then that makes my wife unhappy because she's got to look after my son, and my son's not very happy because. I'm not there, you know, and he wants me to be. So, so um, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a fine balance, really. And it's one of the reasons why I haven't been alpine or into the big mountains for a while. And the, the, the total reason for that is due, due to time. Um, but actually, I'm about to turn that on his head this year, so that's not true. <laughs> but yeah, like, I've not been up to altitude since 2012. So I went to Trango, and that's... Rocco was born in 2013. Okay. And I just kind of figured that I don't really want to go up to altitude because it involves a lot of time away from the family to have a good chance of success. So, um, so I haven't been anywhere. But yeah, I'm heading to Nepal in, in September. Um, and I'll be away for a while. In fact, I'm probably going to be away from home for nearly two months this time. So, yeah, it's a tricky one. But then it's also a lifetime opportunity, so I'm quite excited about that. And I think Katie understands about it. That um, Yeah, so um, I'm going to um, gonna go and try and climb up Everest with um, the president of Mountain Hardware, okay. a chap called Joe Vinaccio, who um, we get on really well. So uh, he... It's something we've been talking about for a while, and we both, I think we both want to do it. 
So he's managed to put the cogs into action to initiate the um, project. And um, yeah, we're going to, well, I'm going to be his wingman, hopefully. Um, and we're going to go in September. Well, we're going to go at the end of August, actually. Because one of the things that I was quite apprehensive about, and I'm sure many people that you hear all this stuff about Everest, is like, you know, the, the volume of people that are going up there. And it's kind of chaos, really. And the last thing I want to be doing is standing in the queue getting cold. So, um, yeah, no one's climbed Everest in, in September for 10 years. So we're going to go and, and hopefully have the mountain to ourselves. What's the, what's the problem with September? Is monsoons or something like that? Well, it's... Edges of, it's, edge of that? It's at pre-monsoon. Okay. So instead of going pre-monsoon, right. where the days get longer and the weather tends to get better, you're going into the winter. So you're... Your timing is limited, you know, like the days are getting shorter and the weather's getting colder. And I think that's why most people, and there's obviously a lot more snow as well. Have you been that high before? I mean, obviously you haven't been as high as, but have you been up above 8,000 before? No, no. no. What, what have you been up to? I've been up to six, nine. Okay. Yeah, so I've not been above seven. Okay. Um, so yeah, it is a big leap forward. You know, it's like an extra 2,000 meters, but um, I will be using oxygen. I'm not going to try and do it without oxygen. Um, for a number of reasons, but um, another one, of course, is time, and it's more time away from the family. Which, and but it's also way harder, way more risky, and it's got much higher consequence, I think. And I think being a family man for me, where you know that doesn't really fit in with where I am right now. So right. I'm not going to try and like totally go for it, do it without oxygen. Which I'd, I'd I've got utmost respect for anyone that's done that i really do and i'm sure that when i go there and i realize how hard it is or not who knows um i'll probably have even more respect for the likes of you know the true alpinists for doing it without oxygen because mm-hmm. i think that's the that's the real way to do it you know sure. if you're going to do it you might as well do it without oxygen but i'm not going to do that um so you don't need to lose digits you've got like no all these other things that you enjoy that requires the tips of your fingers and stuff yeah. too. And oxygen certainly helps with frostbite. So yeah, 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 totally. Yeah, so. Um, so we'll see, you know, maybe I'll go there and maybe I'll get inspired to go back and do it. Who knows? I don't mm-hmm. know. It's mm-hmm. a, it's going to be a new experience. Maybe I won't get to the top. I've got no idea, but I'm going to try and do the best I can to, you know, to get, have the experience. Cause that's what I'm after. Really. I want to, I want to know what all the fuss is about. Right. You know, I've got, Friends that have been up there many times, like Kenton's been up at 13. Um, Leo's been up there, Ian's been up there. Like loads of people I know have been up there. So, um, yeah, this this, this opportunity sort of aligned up with Joe and also Garrett Madison, who's on the uh, Mountain Hardware team as well. He's one of the guides. He's going to be helping us with the logistics. So, um, so, yeah. Yeah, we'll see. Right on. Yeah. I'm, Joe, it's really strange. Like, I've... I've actually been asked, you know, have you done Everest more than any other question in my entire life? And I've always... Now you can maybe say yes. Well, yeah. <laughs> but I've never really wanted to do it. Right. You know, like, I'm way more interested on doing something like K2 or something which is like a new route on a lower mountain, which is not supported and it doesn't have oxygen. And, you know, it's a true climbing style, you know, like a true alpinist. But something's changed this year. And I think it might be the fact that I've been doing quite a lot of running because I don't normally run. And a friend of mine who started climbing, a chap called Mike Murphy, is an incredibly successful um, trail runner. 
and we've teamed up you know I've kind of helped him get into climbing and then he's you know rubbed off his running passion on me and I've been running quite a lot and all of a sudden I thought oh actually I like running around in the mountains this is cool and um because I shattered my kneecap many years ago and I've never didn't never really run on it because it was in five pieces and it just didn't really feel that good but it seems to be doing okay now and I think all of a sudden the thought of doing Everest which initially would seem like a total slog where you just put one foot in front of the other and it's really dull which is what I would you know that was my initial thoughts of it is all of a sudden it's like well wow it could actually be really fun and um it could be amazing and it's funny it's, it's literally like a switch is just being flicked in my head and all of a sudden I'm kind of intrigued and fascinated by what it might feel like to be there and what you might see and I kind of want to have that experience in my life you know I feel really strongly about making the most of the time that you have and the opportunities that you have and doing the most that you can and you know like filling your life with like rich diversity of experience um I've lost so many friends in the mountains and base jumping and all that sort of and some people just not even that you know they've had terminal diseases that I'm just like you know the clock is ticking you know I lost my dad last year and um and that came out of nowhere just absolutely came out of nowhere I spoke to him two hours later he was gone yeah and he had a um um Oh, he, uh, I was going to say he had a heart attack, but he didn't quite, he had a burst aneurysm um, in, his sub, in his aorta coming out of his heart. But the, the point is, is that you, you just don't know what's going to happen. And I know it's a cliche, but I've seen it so many times. And I'm like, right, game on. You know, like, I didn't need my dad to pass away for, to realise that. I realised that a long time ago. And... I'm in go mode, you know, I just want to, I just want to thrive on life and experience, um, you know, and try not to have too much of an environmental impact in the process and, you know, try and sort of, you know, fit it in with family and, and work and all that sort of stuff as well. So, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I just, I just want to, and I'm going to be 45 next week, which is kind of exciting actually. I don't know, man, like, since I turned 40, I've totally smashed a load of PBs, you know, like, I've managed to get my climbing up to a place where I never thought it was possible, in my ice climbing, my sport climbing, my bouldering, and, and, like, now, you know, maybe I've reached my limit, we'll find out in a couple, in a few weeks when I get <laughs> to Spain. Well, you know, the fact that you're training as hard as you probably are, and, and, you know, on a, on a walk over here, we just watched a presentation you gave on ice climbing and uh what's the name of that cave in in canada helmican falls yeah that it's insane you know it is. I'll, I'll when we post this up i'll post the videos that are out there but um but watching you like doing all those one arm hangs off of the off of the tools and stuff you know i asked you about your shoulders because i was sitting there just like wow this guy is you know not too much uh, uh, younger than I am and like hammers himself pretty hard whether it's sport climbing or these ice climbing things and you know you're managing to to stay healthy I assume the the kneecap was base jumping <laughs> no oh was it <laughs> okay it was a u- university tequila oh, incident okay yeah. <laughs> that would have been my second guess yeah <laughs> based on your pictures from the slideshow anyway but yeah. um but yeah i mean it's awesome that you're you're like 
cranking and, and keeping yourself healthy and, and able to attempt these. I mean, that those ice climbs are the hardest thing you ever did. Yeah. Uh, and those were just recently. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. That, well, what I've realized, and I think it's part of becoming a dad and part of it's becoming 40, but if you really pay attention to your life and your kind of systems, I guess, you know, whatever they are, um, if you look into those in fine detail and fine-tune them, actually, you can make quite a big difference. And it's something that I've not paid attention to until recently, you know, until I turned 40. Because, to be brutally honest, I never really trained much. You know, I've trained a bit when I was younger, but I didn't know what I was doing. I mean, training for us was like going climbing. You didn't go training. I didn't run. I didn't go to the gym. I just went climbing. And a lot of the climbs that I did were very suited to my um, strengths, like doing routes which are either really steep or really bold, which involved, you know, weren't really that hard, but they were quite serious. Um, so all the hardest routes were quite specific towards my strengths. So when I turned 40 and became a dad, all of a sudden I'm just like, oh, wow, I've hardly got any time to do anything. Um, let's make it count. And then I started to look into it in more detail, you know, peel a few layers back from the onion, I guess, and really, like, get into the nitty-gritty of, like, okay, well, if you've got an hour and a half, what can you do in that hour and a half that's really going to make a difference, you know? And then the more I looked into that, the more curious I was, and the more I started talking to people, and more I researched it, and all that sort of stuff. And, and, I, and, and now, you know, the level of information that I'm going into with my training is way deeper than I've ever I didn't even know about it like I've just started this training program with Christian Core and Tim Clifford and like Christian was the first guy to climb V16 in the world and he's he knows more about training than anyone I've ever spoken to but then I've not spoken to that many people about it but I think my point is is that um, how much you train and what you train and how you do it, I think, is one massive um, opportunity to be able to improve. Um, what you eat, I think, is huge. Like, what you eat and drink, what you put in your mouth, is it just it's an absolute game-changer to how your body performs. And I'm not talking about stimulants. I'm talking about, like, real food, you know, like, as opposed to kind of food that's going to help you out nutritionally as opposed to food that's just going to fill you up you know like i like to think of food as you've got your macronutrients which are your carbohydrates your fats and your proteins you know they're like the fuel that you put in your car to make it go and that's the, you know that's the stuff that you need to like fire up the engine with but it's actually as you get older making the engine work well and not break down and you know, still do the things you want to do. That's more like the micronutrients, you know, it's like the, uh, your plants and all the, 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 you know, the vital nutrients that you might, that you can easily just like sort of live without. You can bypass those. But I think that if you're quite savvy about what you eat and you try to focus on eating, when I, and I'm not going to say healthy food, I'm going to say food that's live, that's real, food that grows, you know, food that's not processed, and 
Um, you try and stay away from processed food. I mean, I'm not saying you're not going to eat it, but like you just, you know, as a general rule of thumb, you move, steer away from that. All of a sudden, you know, your body works well. And like the old injuries that you had, you haven't got many more, you know. And all the people that are like, oh, well, you know, I'm getting old now. I'm 30 and I'm 40 and I can't do what I used to and I'm too old for this. And it's just like, no, you're not. Or, well, m- maybe you are because you've got past injuries, but I've got loads of past injuries as well. And I just really feel like if you pay attention to what you eat, um, you can change that. You know, like... Um, I don't know whether it's gluten or dairy or both, but I find, and it's really distinct, is that if I eat like a pizza and drink beers, the next day when I wake up in the morning, my ankle, which I've broken and and sprained, um, I've broken it once and sprained it a couple of times really badly, it, um, it, it feels like it's really hurts. You know, and I had that pretty much every day for years and years and years until about four years ago. And then I stopped eating dairy and gluten on a regular basis. And then um, it doesn't hurt anymore, (laughs) you know, and it hasn't hurt for four years. But the the reason why I know it has an impact is because if I do drink a lot of beers and say have some pizza with cheese and or drink some milk and stuff like that and do it all together, then I wake up in the morning and it hurts again. And it's like a it's like a switch. Mm. But I really feel like I feel really energized a lot of the time, you know, and um, and I see a lot of people that are like tired and they haven't got the energy and all that sort of stuff. And I'm just convinced that you can eat your way out of that, you know, I mean, for sure, if you're working really hard and you've got three kids and all that sort of stuff and you're running around, then it's tough. Right. <laughs> um, but um, I just and I. Yeah, I just think there's there's loads you can do. I think right. there's loads you can do. Like, right. You know, and I think, um, are you aware of it? I don't know. You know, ask yourself that question. Right. You know, like you or the viewers or, but it's definitely helped me out massively. So, What's your like go-to sort of guru or manual or when it comes to this nutrition thing? Huh, that's a good question. I mean, where did you pick up the, yeah, what you've learned? Do you know, that's a really good question. It's something that I've uh, I've been to a lot of nutritionalists um, seminars, and I've listened. I've got a friend of mine called Dr. Mitra Ray, who's a, a microbiologist. Um, she's a biochemist actually, and she's kind of specialises in nutrition. And she's taught me a lot about that actually, because she's been researching it for years. Um, and yeah, I've spoken. She, in fact, she was. She came round the house the other day. Actually, I had dinner with her the other day. She lives down in Seattle. But I've also, I'm really inquisitive about it. So uh, there isn't one particular Bible that I look at. Um, cookbooks that I tend to go to are things like Oshi Glows. There's some great recipes on that. And also, there's a website called This Rawsome Vegan Life, which is amazing for like, you know, vegan food. Um, I'm not vegan, but. Um, I tend to be, you know, I try not to eat beef. Um, like if I do eat beef, I'll eat it from a cow that's grass fed that, you know, hopefully goes down the farm down just down the road, but I don't tend to eat beef very much any at all anymore. Um, and, um, I try not to eat too much fish every now and then I will, but, um, just, yeah, whole foods, Mm -hmm. whole foods and things that grow. Let's, uh, talk a little bit about your history. Mm -hmm. We do that. Sure, sure. Cool. I'm. I'm interested. Um, I, I've just had whales on my mind, 
uh, for various reasons. I have another podcast with a, with a buddy, um, Andrew Bishrat, who went there. Uh, DMM brought him over and he climbed and hung out and just got a really good feel for the, for the, the scene. And yeah. he just came back. And he's a big-time sport climber, uh, you know, more of a boulder sport climber type. And he just came back, like, convinced that it was, like, the last little bit of the soul of trad climbing and, like, that kind of vibe there. And you went to college there. Yeah. Um, where are you from originally? Like, where does this accent wow. come from? Yeah. So, I'm, I'm English, but yeah. um, my parents moved around a lot. Okay. My dad was an engineer, and he, moved, he went and did a job wherever, you know, mm-hmm. he was sent off to. And then we went and lived there. So, um, lived all over England. And it wasn't sort of, I wasn't in one specific mm-hmm. part. I did spend a lot of time in the southwest, probably more time there than anywhere else, um, apart from North Wales when I went to university. So, um yeah, I'm not. I don't distinctly have an, a, a particular accent. A lot of people from England are like, "Which part of England oh, really? are you from?" And they can't That's quite figure it out. So, okay. and in fact, most of them think I'm from Australia, which is hilarious. So, um, but yeah, North Wales, it's awesome. I love North Wales. I've got a really soft spot in my heart for North Wales. I enjoyed being there immensely, and I've still got some really good friends that live there. And I love. I, Really like the social scene there. I think it's really, really healthy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And is that, and that's where the climbing bug caught you? Pretty much, yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I started climbing at school mm-hmm. down in Somerset when I was 15. But I went on a climbing trip to North Wales. It was my first climbing trip, you know, for a few days. And I was like, oh, wow, I want it. I really want to live here. How can I live here? And the answer was go to university there. So I decided to go to university just so I could climb in North Wales, which is what I did. You know, I only went to like half the lectures and managed to copy up notes from my good friend Jules Kelly, who was, yeah, helped me out afterwards. But yeah, I went climbing all the time and, and just loved it. Really, really enjoyed it a lot and the people up there and went on some adventures. And the climbing is, is uh, it's like small climbs but big adventure, like a lot of the things in the UK where... Much of the climbing is on sea cliffs. Sometimes the rock's very loose and you have to navigate that. Sometimes there's very little gear. Sometimes you have to nest the gear to one equalizing point. Otherwise, you know, if you just clipped each piece of gear onto a quick draw, then you're going to rip the whole lot. But if you equalize it all with a long sling to one point, then it might hold. So quite a lot of that sort of stuff. You know, it's a bit like a game of chess, you know, with some extra excitement. And consequence but yeah i think um i think north wales is a very healthy place to get into traditional climbing mm-hmm. it's real it's adventure climbing on a, on a small scale and it's a, a you know some of the best climbers in the uk you know people like johnny dawes and stevie haston and you know all those guys spend a lot of time in north wales sort of getting to learn their skills there you know so how did you, you know, or when did you kind of realize you could transition into doing some, um, like some pretty scary stuff? And because there, there was a, a time when you were in the mix with doing, you know, the hard grit type roots and, yeah. and things like you, that. Like, where did your? Do you know why? why? It's because I wasn't good enough to do the really hard roots. So the only roots I could do that were hard were just really bold. Oh. If that makes any sense. And I wanted to do some hard routes. You know, I wanted to climb E8 and E9 and see what that was like. But I wasn't strong enough. I wasn't like Ben and Jerry. You know, I didn't have, like, really strong fingers. I wasn't a boulder. I didn't go bouldering ever. 
um, you know, I was a track climber and I did a bit of sport climbing as well. So I didn't have strong fingers like those guys. And uh, so to do the hard routes, like all the hard routes I did, things like End of the Affair, Gaia, Meshuga, On Grit, for example, those three routes, they're just really bold and potentially really dangerous. Um, to give you an idea, like Meshuga is probably only 13A, you know, but it doesn't have any gear at all. And if you fall off it, you could really hurt yourself. It's about 35 foot. I mean, I know Alex, Alex Honnell soloed it, um, but it's, um, it's just a bit high and a bit steep for soloing, and uh, it's got a horrible landing, really. But in fact, I was beeline Neil Gresham once when he fell off that, and he had to go to hospital. Um, and he luckily he got away with it. I was amazed, actually, because he fell off. And he... I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh, my God, you've actually fallen off. You can't fall off this. You can't... You, and he was in the air, falling down to the ground next to me. And I'm just like, oh, what's going to happen now? And he... Honestly, it's like in slow motion in my mind right now, thinking back, back at it. He landed totally perpendicular like on with his two feet on the only bit of flat rock at the base of this route perfectly in balance and then he kind of because he was you know he'd fallen about 25 feet to that point he then carried on going and he went down the gully afterwards but that initial landing on this slab with his two feet absorbed so much energy and it really really helped him out big time but he still got really bad concussion and I took him to hospital. Um, <laughs> but you guys went back. He went back yeah, and yeah. did it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then I did it after him. So, yeah, it was uh, scary bananas. So, yeah, I don't know. I think I, I just... I enjoyed the experience of getting on the sharp end when there was some serious consequence if I was to make a mistake. I don't know. I find I found that it put me into this state of mind, which I never got any other way, and I was really interested in it. And I just thought it was it, I was fascinated by the experience. And I was young and selfish, you know, and I didn't really care if I died. To be, be brutally honest, when I was really young, I just didn't really. I wasn't that bothered about it. I didn't think about the consequences of my family or anything like that. Um, and I guess in some ways you kind of need that to push your boat, push your neck out. I mean, I was, I was, I was, I now know that I was reckless. You know, I didn't think I was reckless at the time. But when I think about the thought processes that went through my mind, I was really going for it big time. And I got away with it, you know. Um, I guess part of me thought, well, you know, people don't, people don't die on grit roots. Like, who's died on grit roots? And only people that have had un fortunate accidents you know maybe like soloing easy routes or something yeah. like that but no one had tried something really hard and died yeah and i thought well look it's not that bad you're going to be okay you know if you can do it clean on the top rope you're going to be able to do it clean on lead but the difference was that you know my i was i was basically soloing my absolute maximum climbing ability you know like i couldn't uh, my, I think the hardest route I'd ever done was 8A, 13B, and I was soloing 13A. So I was, I didn't know that I was going to be able to do it in the respect that, you know, there was definitely a chance I was going to fall off, but I just kind of hoped that 
I'd be able to keep going. And because I'd done it a few times, I thought, well, you can do it. So just get on the short, sharp end and, and go for it. And, and it, it worked out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I distinctly remember, like, Neil Gresham, for example. So on Meshuga, he was able to climb Meshuga without falling off seven times in a row. And I managed to do it three times. And I knew that if I was going to lead it, I had to just lead it because there's no way I was going to be able to do it seven times. And I knew that, you know, I might have one more go in me. So I then went for it and I did it. But it was by the absolute string of my teeth. Whereas I always thought Neil was a bit better than me at climbing. So, you know, if he did a route, it didn't necessarily mean that I could do it. But yeah, Mashuga was definitely a very um, powerful experience. I remember getting up past the crux and then that there is actually a piece of gear that protects the last bit which is about 510 so you don't need it there's no point putting it in really but it's there and so you might as well put it in and i remember getting there and and i put this piece of gear in and i had to take several minutes to calm down because the amount of adrenaline that was pumping through my veins and arteries was like nothing i'd ever experienced before it was really overwhelming actually and I think it's because I'd gone for it so much. I'd pushed myself so far to the limit that I actually was quite grateful that I got away with it. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. The younger years, God, things you do when you're young. Right. <laughs> well, there's like this, um, I don't know, it seems like, at least in the lore with that whole scene, um, you, there's like, a, you know, it's like kind of probably like a wave of you're all feeding off of each other's energy too in terms of, and, and I'm not saying like, like a competition one-upmanships, although that certainly exists as well. But it seems like, yeah, I mean, it was it was friendly competition yeah. for us. Yeah, but it's just like this wave of the you guys feeding off each other. I mean, watching yeah. your Neil do it seven times, and you're like, all right, well, calculating, all right, well, how does it work for me? How is this going to work for me? You know, based on who he is, and I don't know. It's just a, it's always been a very storied and interesting part of all climbing lore. Is this like these dangerous little grit roots, you know, mm. these like 35 foot, yeah. you know, super dangerous rehearsed things that. And it's guys funny, do. isn't it? Like the yeah. whole rehearsed thing, you know, like looking back, what was that all about? You know, head pointing. Mm -hmm. What does that even mean? You know, you top rope it so you know how to do the moves and then you decide to try and try and lead it. But. One thing's sure, it was really engaging. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it was, it was, there was, a, the, the difference between doing it on a top rope and then tying it on the sharp end and going for it was like, it was like going on a completely different journey, you know. Um, and that was almost addictive. Right. Well, that seems to be for a lot of people. I mm. mean, they, they define whole careers based on that kind of climbing, mm. you know. I mean, that's, really what we know a lot of those names here in the states is based on all that stuff and maybe yeah. they do all sorts of yeah. things that we just never hear about but yeah. you know the johnny dawes and all that that's they're synonymous with those those things yeah. well how did you luck into uh into deep water soloing then deep water soloing oh man i love that's that another piece so of, it a piece another... of your your kind of history that is probably one of the more frequent things that people see anyway yeah the the, the another piece of the puzzle yeah, well, there's a little bit of a story to that. That's um, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the first part of the story, I remember when I was in North Wales and one of the guys 
who I climbed with a bit called Crispin Waddy. Um, I remember phoning him up one day going, hey, Crispin, I've got the afternoon off. Do you want to go climbing? And he said, well, what time's high tide? And I said, well, what's that got to do with anything? What, you know, we could just go climbing in Clamberis Pass. And he was like, do you know, I only go deep water solo in these days. I just go climbing at high tide. And I was like, well, right. So what's that all about then? You know, and he took me on this quest and we went climbing around the, the sea cliffs around Pentruin. Um, yeah, we just went traversing and exploring, you know, oh, I wonder what's around this corner. And, and it was high tide and it was really fun. Uh, and I don't think I fell off that day. We just were exploring a little bit. And then I started doing some deep water soloing down in the southwest. There were some deep water soloing festivals, which we were part of. And a small team of us were going down there in the summer months, like um, Mikey Robertson, Neil Gresham, Zev Grieve, My, uh, Charlie Woodburn and Damien Cook and uh, those guys. And then um, we were like, yeah, there's some really cool little cliffs in Lulworth Cove, and, uh, and, which was this steep wall that wasn't very high. It was only about 40 feet high, but it was very steep, about 30, 40 degrees. And there was another place, Connor Cove, um, which had some great routes over this little cave which was so fun. They were kind of like 5'10", 5'11", 5'12", not too high, about 40 feet again. Um, so we were doing some of that in the summer and falling off and just having a riot. And uh, I was doing the Ice Climbing World Cup. And then I teamed up with some of the Austrians um, at the Ice Climbing World Cup. We were chatting and having beers and got on really well with them. And then, and then um, I ended up meeting up with... Um, I went to Salzburg on a little skiing trip with those guys. And I, went, I ended up going skiing with Clem Loscott. And I talked to him about deep water soloing. And he was fascinated by it. And so I invited the Austrians to come to the UK <clears throat> to come and do some deep water soloing. And we spent a weekend. I took them on tour. And they absolutely loved it. And then Clem turned around. And he's like, well, apparently there's this guy in Mallorca who's done some deep water soloing. And I was like, well, I've heard about a guy in Mallorca. Is his name Miguel? And he was like, yeah, it is Miguel. He works in this climbing shop. So we thought, well, let's get in touch with him. So we then phoned up Miguel, and uh, it turned out that he used to do some deep water soloing on this really cool cliff. But the two people that he climbed with, one of them got run over by a boat and cut his leg up, and he didn't want to go in the sea anymore. And the other one had stopped climbing. So he was on his own, Miguel, and he didn't do water solo anymore because he didn't have anyone to do it with. And he sent us this picture of this amazing sea cliff, which we now know as Diablo. And there was a picture of this guy in bright fluorescent yellow shorts on this incredible, like, Seyu-style, you know, pocketed limestone cliff that looked amazing with, like, tufas and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, we were like, wow, we have got to go there. And it, Miguel had done a couple of routes. And um, so I think the British team went over first. And I don't remember the exact order of it, but I think, like, Neil and myself and Mike, Mikey Robertson and a few other people went there first, and we developed a few routes. And then the Austrians came over, and we developed a few more. And then Josh Lowell and Brett Lowell got in on it, and they're like, yeah, let's make this film. And then we did Dosage 2 with Clem. Um, and then after that, then we went to Vietnam and uh, we did some uh, deep water sailing over there. But we went there first with my British mates, Neil and Seb Grieve and Mikey Robertson. And we put up about 100 new routes and then went back the next year with 
Clem and Josh, and we made the, the Dosage 3 film. Yeah, and then we've been kind of looking for, uh, you know, deep water soloing spots that are as good as the one in Mallorca ever since, and never found one. You know, like Mallorca is the absolute jewel in the crown for deep water soloing from what I've read about. And of course, then there was the whole Chris Sharma scene of Chris getting into it and we took him on his first deep water soloing trip in Saar in um, Croatia, where um, this was like the brainchild of Mike Weeks, actually, a friend of mine. Mike um, had this idea that we were going to create a trip where we were going to try and do the hardest deep water solo in the world. So we invited Chris to come, and also Steve McClure, who's like Britain's strongest climber. And, uh, and then Leo came, and a few of us, you know, a few other people too, Neil Gresham. And, and then my cousin had a, um, a holiday company over there, uh, and you could hire boats, like yachts. And he set us up with these three yachts to go on tour around the Kornati Islands, which was awesome and then we were developing we were just looking for deep water sailing around there with the idea of like you know trying to do this hardest route and there was a dog fight between um between uh chris and uh and steve and i think steve might have won it um he got the first descent of this route but the point was that chris was absolutely psyched out of his mind for deep water sailing Honestly, you couldn't keep him on the boat. He just wanted to climb, like, all the time. And he had one pair of shoes, and he had one chalk bag, so he didn't even use chalk. And he just climbed with his shoes, and he'd go up one route, then another one, then another one. And you could tell that it really, the he had really been caught by the bug. And he, he was in such a happy place going deep water soloing. And then, of course, from then on, he went to um, back to Mallorca and started doing some harder routes, and then, of course, he went and did El Pontas, you know, the, the, that amazing arch, which actually I quite like to go and have a go at now. Um, but anyway, so, yeah, that's the, the kind of deep, deep water soloing stories. Yeah, I mean, it's like you were talking about how, well, heck, nobody ever gets hurt grit climbing, or nobody ever dies grit climbing. You know, they, they get hurt. Um, what's the potential, like, when you guys are getting high up off the ground, I mean, in terms of injury, and have, have you seen anything super gnar i mean because yeah. I, cause I, i've never done yeah. it and, I, and and it's there's been a problem seasonally for me to be over like in mallorca at the right time of year yeah. um, with my work but uh i've always been you know really intrigued by it as well but i also know that like you know the like being scared is a fully big part of it but then you know it's like there's an intellectual thing like well how how high can i go to and still hit the water so the answer to that is watch out yeah yeah because i think it's legitimately scary actually i mean i'd love to say it's funny isn't it i think when you go back to uh clem loscott on dosage two he's like and then you are in the air for what it seems like ever yeah. and forever yeah <laughs> and then all of a sudden splash you hit the water and it feels so soft and it's like well, if there's, a big, if there's big waves, it's soft. Right. And if you land right, it's soft. But if you land on flat water, still water, it is not soft. And if you land badly, it really hurts. I mean, the worst fall I've ever had was from 15 feet. And I landed completely horizontal, and it knocked the wind out of me. And I was like, oh. So you're trying to swim, and you can't breathe. Oh, yeah. yeah. You're just trying to get your breath back. Um, 
but then I have jumped from pretty high up, you know, like 70, 80 feet, maybe 90 feet, actually. I'm not sure. I didn't measure it. But um, if you land well, it's usually okay. Um, but you have to really learn how to land. You know, it's. I think there's definitely some people that think you just turn up and you jump off and it's all good. And <laughs> if that's your take, just be careful. You know, you're probably going to get yourself. I mean, I've seen my friend Mike Weeks do a backward somersault off a 65-foot ledge and he landed on his side and he only punctured his lung. Yeah. You know, it was, you know, he was coughing up blood and luckily there was someone in the water. Mikey Robertson was in the water to rescue him, but he was okay, actually. Um, I've seen someone else fall off a, um, off a tufa from about 30 feet and land sideways. And he punctured his lung as well. Um, so, and I also know someone that's jumped off Diablo and compressed their spine. And I've heard other people that have done that too. So you, there's definitely a technique to it, you know. And um, I think the key is that you... What I always do, or what I try to do when I jump off or when I fall off deep water soloing, is I try, as soon as I get into the air, I move my arms and my legs, like, voraciously. And what that seems to do is it helps you to keep your core, you know, your trunk, in an upright position. If you're static in the air, you've got no control. But, you, you know, you seem to be able to, I seem to be able to have some form of control when I'm in the air if I move my arms and legs really aggressively um but then just before you hit the water you need to pierce through the surface tension so rather than going floppy which can really hurt you want to go really tense like like tense all your muscles bring your legs together and you want the whole of your body to be one unit because if you think about it if your feet hit the water and you're not tense then your feet all of a sudden slows down really, really quickly, but your head is still, and you know, the rest of your body is still in free fall. So you're going to get compression. Whereas if you've got, if you go really tense and the whole of your body is like engaged, you, you're going to go through as one piece, you know, does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think if people know that, then they're in, yeah, they're in for a better chance really, but you can still, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a funny one, really. I definitely think... I mean, I did loads of jumping off low cliffs before I started taking big falls. Um, and I think it's good to clock up mileage doing that so that you get an idea of, you know, what you can and can't do. Yeah, so it's not just like at the beach winging yourself off no. having a good old time. No, <laughs> no. And, but I think, like, quite rightly, when you first start deep water soloing, usually... You hang on so hard because you're not used to being that high up without a rope and a harness that you get really pumped. And then when you get really pumped, you're like, oh, no, I'm about to fall off. And it's a really scary experience, you know, depending on how hard it is that you're trying to climb up. Um, but when you get into it, you have to fall off a bunch of times, you know, and then you can relax and realize that the water is actually quite soft. Mm -hmm. But, um, yeah, it's a uh, go on a journey of discovery to find that out. You mentioned this in your... Um in your presentation and you just, you know, keep using this word of experience. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, talking about I wasn't Everest. Aware of that, actually, but that's, it, well, yeah. I mean, that's what you talked when you said earlier in this conversation about Everest, like this experience. Yeah. And you talked about jump the the part about trying to fly off Trango is like this experience. Right. I mean, you said that a whole bunch, and um, it just seems to be a little bit of a through line. Yeah. With, interesting. Like, you know, the experience of topping out a Mashuga and having this like you know incredible adrenaline wash and and uh wh- where does the where did the base jumping fit in and in i'm right in or am i right in that you you walked away from base jumping yeah i've um, stopped base jumping yeah yet. like yeah in kind of a um not a public way but I, I did i read something that you wrote about it in terms of like saying that this is just i'm done with this for now or i did yeah. do you know it's interesting I did make a post on yeah. Facebook once saying that I wasn't going to jump again. Oh, I, I wonder what I said. Maybe I should go back and have a look at that. But I distinctly remember I did write a post about um, not taking my base rig to Canada. So I was going to Canada and normally I'd take my base yeah, rig. Yeah, that was but, it. Yeah, and I, wasn't, I didn't take it. And it was the most popular post I've ever, ever posted. Well, it was, in that, it was in a period when, you know, there was, there was a lot of um, backlash against... Well, not backlash, but, you know, I think it was around when Stanley had died. It was before then. Okay. Oh, hang on. No, it wasn't. No, you absolutely... I think it was before Dean. Hang on. Let me just think about this. Yeah. Yeah. It was exactly around the time that Stanley died. Yeah. Yeah. But it was before Dean. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. I used to jump with those guys a lot. They were... I jumped with those two more than anyone else, actually, in my later part of my base jumping years. Um... Yeah, and some of the best experiences in my life were with those guys, actually. Flying around the valley is incredible. It's absolutely incredible. It's a real shame that you're not supposed to do it. Right. It is, it's very unfortunate, actually, because it makes it way more dangerous, the fact that you're not supposed to do it. Because right. all the people that want to do it are going to do it anyway. Like, they're still going to do it. They're not going to not do it because it's illegal. They're still going to do it. But they're not going to do it as safely as they would if it was legal. You know, like, for example, in Europe, um, like, um, yeah, in, like, Lauterbrunnen and in, um, in Norway, you know, you can jump all day, every day, whenever you want. And there's, thou- there's tens of thousands base jumps a year in those valleys like in Lauterbrunnen there were over 45,000 jumps last year that's the same that's a lot yeah and it's honestly it's like people just session it they totally session it and when you look at the statistics of that number of people doing it it's actually pretty low on a fatality rate right. you know um, and yeah and it just like Yosemite would be like the coolest it would just be the best place in the world to go base jumping yeah. like legally and it would be so safe it would be like jumping out of an aeroplane you know because the cliffs are so high and the landings are so big and there's so much space and the pure the, 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 uh, the one thing that makes it way more risky and it, it increases the risk level massively is the fact that you don't want to get caught so you jump late at night or early in the morning when you can't see very well. And you land in areas which are really hard to land in. They're really small areas because you don't want to get caught. And if, if you know, and uh, so, I mean, yeah, who knows? 
if that would have helped Dean out, or but it certainly would have helped Sean out. I mean, I don't think... I think the reason why Sean didn't make it is because he was trying to land outside of the park, mm-hmm. you know? So there you go. There's a prime example, you know? So, but, like, going back to... Going back to sort of my base jumping career, I jumped for 10 years. I started jumping with Leo, Leo Holding, back in 2005. And also my friend, um, Sean Ellison, um, who, and both those two have stopped jumping now as well. And um, Leo started jumping off Perrine Bridge, and he, he was in the US doing it there, and I was doing it in Belgium with with Sean because in Belgium it wasn't legal and there were all these little bridges that you could jump off they weren't very high but there was lots of space yeah it doesn't them, Belgium you know. doesn't strike me as no. like the big base jumping capital of no, the world. I know it's so flat isn't it <laughs> um, a lot of people choose to start base jumping in Norway you know or in, off Perrine Bridge in, in uh, yeah in the US but um, yeah it really grabbed me actually when I first started doing it I was like oh wow you know this is incredible you know but it had it, it was I remember one of the days in Lauterbrunn and I think it was my first ever cliff jump was I it was like the the most incredible experience of my life and then two hours later the worst experience of my life like period you know within two hours and the first one was jumping off this cliff which was 1,600 feet high, and the other one was was seeing my friend, like, make a big hole in the ground because he didn't pull his parachute early enough. And he was doing his first wingsuit jump, um, and and his girlfriend was there, and it was really full-on, actually. It was... But it, but, but the, the, the back... The, uh, yeah, whew, that was really full-on. So the... The counter-argument to that, I suppose, watching someone that you know, he wasn't a good friend, he was someone that I'd met through base jumping, but watching that happen in front of your eyes was like a real reality check, you know, and I'm I'm sure there's lots of people out there that would just be like, well, yeah, how can you possibly keep going base jumping after that when you've seen that? And the answer to that is that um, the night before Dwayne died, he was talking about, you know, if you want to have fun, because you normally pull your parachute when you get scared. And it's a natural reaction. You know, you get this ground rush experience where you jump off the cliff and you start to accelerate and the ground's really far away. And as you get faster and faster and faster, there's this point where all of a sudden the ground starts coming towards you really quick. And instantly you reach around and pull your pilot chute it's totally instinctual. It's not a thought process at all. And one thing, but you normally pull to, you know, you pull well within your limit, you know. And what um, Dwayne was talking about was he's like, well, if you want to have fun, you know, you basically, you wait until you get scared and then you count to one and then you pull. And if you really want to have fun, then you count to two and then you pull. Um and that's what he was talking about in the bar the night before he died. And he pulled his pilot chute, but he pulled too late. So he was like, you know, 0.2 of a seconds away from totally being fine because his canopy did come out, but the lines didn't go, they weren't tense when he hit the ground, I don't think. 
so it didn't slow him down. He was just shy of of that. So Leo and I had a long chat, and we did consider not jumping again then. But what we decided to do was we were going to make sure that we were always going to leave a margin for error, and we were never, ever going to push it. That was our sort of green light to continue doing it. And um, using that, you know, to guide us into the future definitely saved my life. Like, I wouldn't be here if I if that hadn't happened, actually. I know that for a fact. Because there's been a number of situations where I've held back and I've actually needed that extra time to deal with what's happened, what, you know, the, 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 you know, the next thing. So, um, so yeah, that was, uh, yeah, quite ironic, I suppose, but... So what, what, I mean, we, we started with your, your post about stopping. Yeah. I mean, what was the, what, what, what was the thought, thought process? Well, there was, why not there just was, keep doing it? Yeah, there were three reasons why I stopped and they all happened at the same time. It was like this, like, realization. Um, the first one was that the last jump I did with Sean in the, in the circling and climbing balls, in the vampire spires, actually, um, I had line twist and, um, I crashed and I was, I was totally out of control as I was coming into land. You know, I'm not going to pretend that, you know, I could have done this and I could have done that. I'd gone through all the things that I could do to try and get out of the situation I was in and I was totally helpless like 100% and for the last two or three seconds just before I hit the ground I was like oh wow you know I'm about to get smashed up big time you know I'm about to be that story of the people I know that have either died or they've had a really really bad accident and they're out of action for like a year or two and that was the last thing that went through my mind just before I hit the ground. And I just shut my eyes. And bang, you know, I impacted and I rolled and all that sort of stuff. And and I was all right, you know. And I was like, and I felt so lucky to get away with it because I knew that it could have been really bad. Well, and also, I mean, even an injury that if you're in the lower 48 or in Europe is... No big deal. It's a big deal up there. Well, yeah. But the thing is, though, that usually with base jumping, it either goes really right. well or you die. Right. You know, there's not... You rarely have that sort of middle ground, which you do with other adventure sports or extreme sports like mountain biking and all that sort of stuff. It's It tends to be quite clear-cut, and for sure, you know, you have you can have close calls, but... It's usually quite black and white, um, in my experience. So the first thing was that I wasn't in control, and I didn't like that. It was the first time I'd ever been in a jump when I'm not, I wasn't in control of what I did. And I'm a, you know, I'm not a control freak, but I'm a very sort of analytical, specific risk avoidance risk. I mean, I know when I was younger, I was a little bit loose, but you know, I'd learned with my years that to be more savvy and detailed, and like trying to mitigate risk by um, by um, knowledge and preparation and, you know, making good decisions, you know. There were lots of jumps where I'd walk from hours and hours and hours or climb or something, get to an exit point, too windy, turn around and walk back where other people would jump. But for me, I didn't want to do that because I didn't want to expose myself to that level of risk. And a lot of that was down to back to, to Dwayne. But 
Yeah, as soon as I realised I wasn't in control, I thought, well, wow, if, if I do another jump and that happens again, how can I justify that to Kate? You know, I'm just about to become a dad. How can I justify that to my family? That's really selfish, you know. Um, and the second thing was um, that Sean died like three weeks later and he was just about to be a dad. And I'd just become a dad, you know. So the fact that Sean had... Basically, all the people apart from Leo and Sean Ellison, the guy that I started jumping with, and also another chap, Roger, had either either stopped or they'd died. And that was it. You know, there wasn't anyone that was carrying on doing it apart from some of the people that were absolutely at the top level of the sport. You know, the, like Robbie Pecknick crew, um, James Bould, you know, some of the people that were right at the forefront of... of base jumping and wingsuit technology he did it really well and I felt like you know if you dip your toe in it a little bit it's a bit like climbing if you climb all the time you're really fit and you're current and you can make really good decisions but if you only go climbing like once every now and then you're not going to be in shape you're not going to be you're more likely for something to go wrong and I think with wingsuit flying you've got to either be really 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 current and do it all the time, or you've got to be really careful, you know. And the other thing was that I just started to do, started to terrain fly, you know. I got into wingsuit proximity flying, and, and I tasted it, and I was like, oh, wow, this is really fun. Um, but it's also really dangerous, and I, I felt like base jumping was dangerous enough as it was. And I could just see that with all those things coming together at the same time, there was like me having a, me being out of control and having a, um, an accident, Sean passing away, and he was way better at flying than I was. Um, and then also the wingsuit proximity where you just know that you're going to get really into it and you're going to fly close to things a lot. And it's, it was just like, well, this. It's just how how can I honestly say to myself that I can carry on doing this knowing that it's not going to kill me? And I couldn't, you know. And as a result, I couldn't turn around to Katie and say, my wife, you know, hi, and I'm going to go jumping now and look her in the eye. And genuinely, honestly, feel like, you know, I was definitely going to come back. And that is something I've never experienced before. And I just, it was black and white for me, you know, it's... I just couldn't do that to her, and especially with Rocco, and he was born too, so, yeah. A lot of people think that I stopped basing me because I became a dad, but it's much deeper than that. You know, there's much, there's way more layers to it than just becoming a parent. Um, it was a real switch. Um, and, I mean, yeah, I miss it. You know, I miss it big time. It's amazing, and... Especially when I'm driving around or I'm in country where there's massive cliffs everywhere. You know, I'm absolutely in wingsuit mode, even though I don't do it anymore and I haven't done it for five years. But, you know, I'm looking at, oh, there's an exit point up there. You could fly off there and you could land, you know, fly and land down here. And Yeah, but then, you know, I guess it's a bit like a drug, isn't it? It's maybe, a, but, but uh, I mean... The, yeah, it's a funny one. I'm so, you know, I'm so glad that I've got climbing to fall back on because I find that 
base jumping and wingsuit flying is like a quick hit, you know, it's just like, you know, it's a really short rush, um, which is really, really fun and really intense, but climbing's a bit more wholesome, you know, it's a much longer experience, you know, you spend time, um, it's always different, and I really love climbing for that you know there's so many different rock types and so many different styles of climbing there's an enormous amount of variety and that keeps it really interesting to me and that's why i'll always come back to to being a climber you know um because it's not just about going as fast as you can as hard as you can making it as dangerous as you can you know you can go and have an amazing day out in the mountains or deep water soloing or go and do some really fun bouldering in Squamish or, or go ice climbing or whatever, you know, I mean, it's, and it can just make you feel amazing and share really cool experiences with your friends and meet new people. And yeah, I think climbing is such a brilliant sport for that sort of, yeah, for that. So, uh, let me ask you one last question. We'll go back to the beginning because we started talking about, and we were just talking about Rocco, your son's five, right? Yeah. So, Matt, I mean, have you thought about uh, what and how you'll talk to him about <laughs> these things and about what Dad does? And and I mean, what will be your message to this to this little man that's going to come up and be interested in all these things and what you do? Yeah, wow, it's like the ultimate question, that isn't it? You know, um, it's really interesting that because for the first part of Rocco's life. Um, my wife had banned me from talking about base jumping to him. She was just like, it is off limits, you know. But then as he's grown up, he's more aware of what's going on. And he's seen people wingsuit off the chief. You know, he's been at the boulders at the bottom. And he's watched them fly. And he turned around to the person standing next to me saying, my dad does that. And I'm like, well, how do you know that, Rocco? You know, yeah, and right. I like sit, know about seriously, yeah. seriously, right. and I've never showed him my wingsuit. I've never showed him a, a base jumping video ever. And he said that to my friend who was standing next to me, you know, and I don't know how he knows that, but he does. So I'm not, I can't keep it away from him, you know, and I think the only thing I can do is be incredibly open and honest with him about it. So that he can understand, you know, my motives for getting into the sport and the experiences that I've had and learned from it. And also, you know, and, you know, that unfortunately the losses that have accompanied that too, you know. And luckily, he's still got a long time before he can even contemplate getting into that sport. Yeah, I mean, you know, I guess I was more even talking about just the whole. I mean, this, this life that you've led of, mm. you know, sort of a, adventure and experience, yeah. you know, whether it's climbing or whether it's just more like, um, you know, have you thought about like how this kid, what you can, what you can teach him about how you interact with the world? Yeah. Maybe? I mean, I, I want to pass on all the knowledge I've got to him and I want him to flourish in this life, you know. The most important thing for me, for him, is is to be happy. You know, like, if he decides to do something, then I'll guide him and help him, you know, steer him down that path and try and keep him on the on the 
straight and narrow, I guess. But, I mean, I just want him to be really happy. That's the most important thing for me. And whatever path he chooses to go down, I just want to try and give him some advice um, to help him do it safely and, and the best way he can, you know, because I, when I look back at my life, you know, I'm 40, I'm going to be 45 next week. I, I'm just, I just feel really happy about it in the respect that I've tried to do so much, you know, I've filled it with so many experiences and so much, you know, like if I was to like drop dead tomorrow, I couldn't have done any more than I have. I've like completely gone for it. And, um, and I really want Rocco to have that same opportunity as well, you know. And if he wants to do some things which I think are pretty risky, then for sure I'm going to be twitching, <laughs> you know, because I don't want him to get hurt. But then I would be an absolute hit- hypocrite to, like, hold him back from that. Like, my mum and dad have been very supportive of me and they've really, like, nurtured whatever I've wanted to do to, you know, and... and, and which is quite different to a lot of the people they know and a lot of the other kids they know. I mean, I've gone down a completely different path. So I think it's only fair that I do the same with Rocco, you know, and really try and help him to make to be wise and, you know, try and educate him the best way I can so that he can make good decisions too. folks thanks for listening and thanks to tim for getting that done immediately right out of the gates there at the michigan ice fest and i want to also thank the michigan ice festival for having me bill thompson for making it happen putting me up and we had a really great time up there met a lot of awesome folks and i do appreciate the hospitality and just the stoke from the midwest climbers up there making fun of my ice climbing acumen, including passing out on lead, which we all remember from some story I told a while back. Okay, folks, I haven't really mentioned this in a while, but you can, of course, help out the podcast by going to enormacast.com, clicking on the Help Out tab. On there, you can do all sorts of stuff, like rate me at iTunes with a five-star, not a one-star rating, and you can, uh, you know, Head over to the Facebook page, join the Instagram, the Twitter feed. Uh, you can also donate some money if you feel like sucking these up for free. Makes you feel guilty. Oh, also, there's a store over there with T-shirts and hats. So, yeah, a bunch of ways to support the Normacast by doing something or by handing over some money, getting some goods, maybe not, whatever. Check it out. Normacast.com. Help out. Okay, cool. I'm still in Mexico. Guess what? I just recorded the intro like two minutes ago. Now I'm recording the outro. That's a little behind-the-scenes magic time travel podcast stuff right there. All right, folks, please, you guys, head out there into the adventures that you want to have, but please be careful. Please communicate, and of course, check your knot.
Part of the confusion is that the United Kingdom is not a single country, but instead is a country of countries. It contains inside of it four co-equal and sovereign nations. The first of these is England. England is often confused with the United Kingdom as a whole because it's the largest and most populous of the nations and contains the de facto capital city, London. To the north is Scotland, and to the west is Wales, and, often forgotten even by those who live in the United Kingdom, is Northern Ireland. Each country has a local term for the population. While you can call them all British, it's not recommended as the four countries generally don't like each other. The Northern Irish, Scottish, and Welsh regard the English as slave-driving colonial masters, no matter that all three have their own devolved parliaments and are allowed to vote on English laws despite the reverse not being true, and the English generally guard the rest as rural yokels who spend too much time with their sheep. However, as the four constituent countries don't have their own passports, they are all British citizens, like it or not. They are British citizens of the United Kingdom, whose full name, by the way, is the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland.